This is the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. And throughout the Epiphany season, I have been saying that uh, this mini green season and the Sundays after Epiphany constitute, uh, like the regular green season, a focus on the nature cost and the ways and means of Christian discipleship. But there is a tincture to the Sundays after Epiphany which focus on epiphanies, little ones, and also on the idea of manifestation. How do we, as faithful people, seek to make manifest the promises of God? And you've heard me say many times to you that this does not always mean um, going out and mouthing a particular religious vocabulary or a particular uh, um, inside baseball way of understanding the Christian faith and life. Being a faithful Christian has something to do with uh, learning to be a decent human being. Today, in the readings, uh, the focus is on vocation and on conversion. And these themes are going to be replayed now uh, through Lent as we move. We have one more Sunday after Epiphany, and on the last Sunday after Epiphany every year we read the story of the Transfiguration which is a foretaste of the possibility of God's transforming power, understood in seeing Jesus transfigured, the template, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and by extension, we understand in some way that we too can be transfigured. So all three readings are about vocation and about conversion. So I thought I'd say something about this because conversion uh, is viewed by some Christian groups in a way, shall we say, somewhat different than in the Episcopal Church. So we need to, to understand what it is. So what I'm going to do first is say some things about conversion, sort of as a, as a theological enterprise, uh, then to say something about all three readings from Isaiah, a very famous reading, from Paul's letter, to the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, where he is talking about the resurrection and in Luke's Gospel, where we have a, a miracle story, the story of the miraculous draft of fishes and Peter's response to Jesus uh, after he sees this natural miracle and how we might think about it. Christianity is replete with people who have experienced powerful conversions. And sometimes I think a lot of people are put off by this because they believe that it is simply not possible for them to have this kind of conversion experience. Uh, perhaps it's not necessary, and focusing on it too much uh, is problematic. Probably the two of the most important uh, pe people in Christian history who have experienced profound conversions are St. Augustine in the 400s, the, late three, the early 400s, and St. Paul who had a conversion experience that was very powerful for him. Unfortunately for many people, uh, there's, a, there's a, a view held by many that those kinds of conversion experiences are the ones that we need to seek or have or to wish for. I told you a couple of weeks ago, I've had people tell me that, you know, they really want to have a religious experience that's just going to knock them off their pins. And all of the great writers on the spiritual life, certainly in the first three or four centuries, cautioned against seeking these experiences out. 
and said, you need to be very careful uh, about this uh, when, you, when you seek it. But sometimes you and I have experienced conversion in a kind of slow, steady stance. And it, it doesn't just have to do about our religious commitments or our belief in Jesus or God. It has to do with the vocations that we've selected in our lives, with our family members, with our friendships. And sometimes uh, we have received some element of conversion about how to live in relationship in a little more healthy fashion. And so that's a conversion process. The people who write about this in a systematic way say that a, a conversion process, certainly in the people who have written about it in an autobiographical sense, would say that uh, first they experience uh, a disorientation. Some form of, um, you know, being unsettled, either through the processes of thinking and reflecting, or through life circumstances that bring them to a moment of decision, or something where they feel uh, knocked off balance. And the second thing after that is uh, the the urge that people have to begin to think about their past think about their own personal history and to say, you know, how have I been uh, uh, doing, uh, both in terms of the internal relationship with me and my personal demons and the way I see the world and so on, and also the way in which I relate to others. And when they begin to think about their history, in the recovery movement, you'd call it doing a searching and fearless moral inventory. You take a look at your life with a clear and unobstructed uh, view. This is easy to say and hard to do, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that a person who is moving through a process of conversion experiences. The third thing is the feeling of forgiveness for past failures. And a belief in God's mercy. You know, I don't think we take seriously enough as Christian people that we're supposed to be mediators of the mercy of God. God's mercy doesn't come like some green gas that gets infused in you and all of a sudden, gee, right? It's mediated through the, through the community and through faithful people who practice some species of sympathy and compassion. So God's mercy is in a way mediated through the Christian community. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is uh, the belief that they have received uh, a call from the enabling other, the one who has entered their life now or who is manifest to them. The easiest way to speak about it in sacramental terms is that uh, in our tradition, the Anglican tradition and in the other Catholic churches uh, of the West and the East, we believe that at our baptism we receive the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God is understood to be God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So it's the power of insight, the ability to uh, understand, you know, to develop uh, our cognitive powers when we look at our life. In post-modernity, there are a lot of people who talk about the culture that we live in as uh, being full of cognitive dissonance. And it's true. 
There's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense at the same time. But you know, Christians from the jump knew that they were living in a world of paradox. Yes and no at the same time. Have you ever felt that? Yes and no at the same time? You know? And it's not an easy place to dwell, is it? But sometimes people are called to do that. And those who have been converted in some way seem to understand that. But what they also have learned is this, that they are not dependent on anyone for their salvation except God. The great saints have understood that very clearly, and most of us have a very difficult time with this. You know, because we want the redemption to come from other people. The ones we're close to or the ones that, uh, you know, the ones who are uh, sympathetic to uh, our personal brilliance <laughs> and who go, I, I just had no idea, right? <laughs> you know? But the fact of the matter is, this is, I don't know why this popped into my head. At St. Michael's Church in Tucson, Arizona, where I began my ministry, it was a, an, an adobe church. It was a Spanish church. It was, a, as you'd say in the Episcopal Church, nosebleed high. <laughs> okay. So uh, it was beautiful. It had a saguaro rib ceiling, and it had a whole lot of old Mexican statues and uh, altar fittings, and uh, it was, it was beautiful, cut tin. Uh, chandeliers and so on. So in the back, there was an altar, a chapel dedicated to St. Michael the Archangel because St. Michael was the, was, the, uh, was the patron of the parish, St. Michael and Lorenzo. So uh, the first Mondays, I always took the little, we had a parochial school there with 200 kids in it, and I took the, the uh, kindergarten into the church for a brief chapel service and we'd walk around and look at things. And it was the year my son, my young son James, was in, uh, the, uh, in the class. And so he goes with us and we walk down the back of the church and we, I take him into this chapel and here's this beautiful statue, Mexican statue of St. Michael the Archangel. It was, it, was, it was the real deal. So I said, who is that? And they all went, oh, it's St. Michael. And I said, who is St. Michael? And they all said, St. Michael is the boss of all the angels. <laughs> and I said, that's right. And my son James says, at our house, you're the boss right now. <laughs> that's the first and last time I ever got that, I can tell you. <laughs> Now here's the thing about conversion before I get to the readings. Nobody can remain converted in perpetuity. It is a mistake on the part of certain Christian groups to believe that the process of conversion is a once and for all undertaking. I read in a, in a uh, commentary about conversion, Conversion must be viewed developmentally as a constant striving for holiness that is assisted and sustained by others within a larger faith community. So holiness in this particular case does not mean uh, the cultivation of certain pious practices only. It means faithfulness in the community and how we hold one another up 
in the process of sustaining our resolve, giving us the spiritual stamina that we need to, to face the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. And it is the community of faith that assists in that process. We cannot do this by ourselves. So that is also part of this. The transformation of the moral life, which can be the gradual turning away from putting your own interests first towards less selfishness and service to others. That's the process of conversion. So you're going to learn to suffer fools a little bit more gladly, maybe, if you need to. You're going to learn to be a little more generous. You're going to work on your tood, get those rough edges knocked off, and be a little less, a little bit more gentle, a little bit uh, better with regard to how you uh, relate to people. You know, this isn't rocket science. You don't have to believe, behave like some uh, holier-than-thou individual with regard to this, although Eleanor Alameda accused me on Thursday of it because I had a big moth hole in my sweater that I was wearing back here, and she thought I had it, and everybody could see it because I was affecting a holier-than-thou attitude, and it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so what we have in the three readings from the book of the prophet Isaiah from 1 Corinthians and from Luke are aspects of this process of conversion that I've just read to you. Isaiah receives his call. This is a famous passage. I step away from, from the point about conversion here just to tell you there's something in this passage that we do all the time on Sunday, isn't it? Holy, 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 Lord God. If that's where we got it from, it was in the synagogue liturgy. So in the, in the Christian liturgy, that uh, came into our worship. So that's one of the locations you hear holy, holy, holy. There are one or two more. And it also, for some, is an indication of some kind of uh, primitive Trinitarianism. But that's for another day. Isaiah, this is the real Isaiah. I've mentioned to you before, uh, depending on, your, there are three. Isaiah. Second Isaiah, or Deutero Isaiah, and third Isaiah, Trito Isaiah. Well, who can? Well, the, the 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 chronological period that is described in this book, no one human being could be alive that long. So the fact of the matter is, is that we know that there must have developed after Isaiah a school of faithful disciples of Isaiah, who consistently replicate his prophetic ministry. And we start today with the situation on the ground in the ancient Near East. When is this? Well, let's say 748 BC. And there was some, uh, it was either a Babylonian or one of the, uh, uh, Tilgath-Pilasar came down into the northern kingdom of Israel and just was raising the roof. And Isaiah is believes himself to be called by God to uh, say uh, this is something that is happening here because of our lack of faithfulness. The interesting <coughs> thing is, this is the subject of another sermon, do you believe in a God who says to some prophet of Israel, I want you to speak in such a way as to confuse them and dull their ears so that they wouldn't understand that they needed to change? We want to let them go ahead and uh, experience 
the negative stuff that's going to happen to them because then they'll learn. I'm not so sure that's, you know, we talked about this a few months. Is God capricious? And there is an outlook in the Hebrew Bible that would suggest that that might be so. It also has something to do with a view that, that, uh, that we believe in the sovereignty of God. Right? God's God. He can do what he wants. Right? But the Christian scriptures say that God is not capricious and that the law of love is the operative principle in all human relationships. So what Isaiah's value is for Christian people is to see that the processes of conversion that have been operating stand in continuity with all of the people of God through the history that we describe in our sacred scripture. So Isaiah ends by being somewhat a little more upbeat, and he will continue as he moves into uh, the prophetic books when we get to chapter, or to cha when we get into, say, chapter 7 or 8, he'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, Paul is describing in his uh, epistle today uh, his own personal conversion. And it, um, you may know this already. First of all, the compilers of the New Testament did not have the same difficulty that many Christians subsequently had with the fact that the Bible does not agree that there are different accounts of things in the New Testament. So instead of one gospel, we have four. And they're not the same. And it's okay. So Paul is describing his conversion and why this is important from a, you know, catechetical or a Christian education point of view is, it's about the earliest material in the New Testament that describes the resurrection. It is the earliest resurrection appearance. And it dates, in this case, the tradition that Paul is handing over. Notice he didn't say, I'm handing it down. He's handing it over. That's what a rabbi would say in terms of handling the tradition. I'm handing this over that I received. And he's talking about something that went on at the Council of Jerusalem in the book of Acts that dates to 35 AD. And Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven in 33. So we are dealing with somebody who has seen, who is, and knows the eyewitnesses, Cephas, Peter, James and others. And he is describing this. You know, the earliest record of the Eucharist and the words of institution at the Mass, this is my body, this is my blood, are in 1 Corinthians. And he explains again that this is the tradition he has received. So you're talking about stuff that's very early. 1 Corinthians was written in about 54 AD. Just to sort of place it. And Paul is speaking now about his process of conversion and all of the things that we describe, being unsettled, uh, having this surprise of Jesus appearing to him as one untimely born. He has some kind of an, a, a palpable experience of the risen Jesus, some vision, some sort of uh, uh, experience like this. And he describes it in this reading, in this writing. And he talks about how the resurrection faith is an instrument 
for the Corinthian congregation to understand their process of conversion. And for many of the Corinthians, it's not being converted to some obscure inside baseball Gnostic philosophy. It's being converted to the power, the transforming power of Jesus in the hearts of all faithful people. And he is the witness and the apostle for this uh, throughout uh, the Greek-speaking world, the Gentile world. In, in Luke's gospel, Peter is in the boat. Jesus is, is preaching to the crowds. I saw a, a, a video once of, of the locations where he did this. And the way that the mountains are and the, and the way the geography slopes, you could actually go out where it describes here and speak and be heard by crowds that are standing around, lots of them. There's something about the acoustics uh, in, this, in this area. So he goes out into a boat and Peter and another boat of Peter and Jan, all these people. And so at the, at, after he finishes talking, he tells Peter to let his nets down. He said, we've been trying to catch fish all day and we haven't had any results. So he says, do it anyway. And when he does, they got so many fish that, that they can't, they almost sink the boat. So Peter's reaction to this is that sense of disorientation and unworthiness and personal sinfulness. Depart, O Lord, from me because I am a sinful man. Now remember, he's beginning to understand Jesus in depth because just before this, Jesus was at his mother's house, Peter's mother, and healed her of a fever. We dug that house up. It exists in Capernaum, and it's there. It's an archaeological find. And he sees that Jesus had done this and sees the other sayings and things that he does. And it is now he's now beginning to get the fact that the difference between his uh, holiness of life and the depth of his humanity is substantially different than his own. Now, what is Jesus? I'm always glad when I read this text that um, Peter, uh, that Jesus doesn't say to Peter, your sins are forgiven. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Next week and the story of the transfiguration, I'm not sure whether Luke's version, Jesus is going to say that to those three apostles that are on the mountain with him. Do not be afraid. So if we think about our own process of conversion and the difficulty that all of us feel in the necessity sometimes for change, the Savior has said, do not be afraid, you know? And maybe that's good advice because if we live on a daily basis less anxious, uh, more able to deal with the anxiousness and reactivity of other people, uh, we generally, we, we generally uh, have some excellent results when we're able to do that. This is certainly a lot easier to say than to do, isn't it? But it's something that's part of our self-understanding as Christian people. So I suggest this week that you think about your conversion experiences. Think about the little epiphanies that you've had in your life. You know, they don't have to be dramatic and they don't have to be about religious matters only. 
And I'll bet every one of you has had some kind of experience like that, some moment of clarity where you understood uh, what your purpose was and how now you wish to conform your life to be the transparency and reflection of God's grace and love that you're called to be. Because we're going to get into some serious self-examination during the season of Lent, and you might as well start now. <laughs> Amen.